So, Rebecca, I want to ask you some questions. I have some things to talk about. And uh, what do you say? Let's. Do you, would you like to do that with me today? Rebecca? Yeah, I'm jumping on board. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Rebecca? I'm Rebecca Bloom. I am a mental health counselor and a board board certified art therapist uh, working in South Seattle. And if people want to hire you, they go to what website? Uh, I'm currently full, so don't call me. And I'm about to go on a sabbatical, so also don't call me. (laughs) So there. (laughs) But you could follow me on Twitter at rbloomatr, or you could follow me on Instagram at rtexts. And you have uh, trainings and stuff sometimes. Yes. Uh, If this is in our current time period, if if we are heading into March of 2018, uh, you can look me up on cascadetrainings.org, and I will be teaching Art Therapy for Grief and Loss on... Uh, it's supposed to sound really smooth, but it sounds really clunky. On Friday, March 16th in Shoreline, Washington. And on March 4th, I will be teaching a training on vicarious trauma, which will have lots of uh, expressive arts interventions, but not specifically for art therapy. And then in October 2018, on the 12th, I'll be teaching art therapy for trauma. So come and join me. Awesome. So I have, I'm sure, I don't know if you got this, but they, uh, I got an email notification from, I can't remember where exactly, but in February 2018, the month we're in right now, the Senate of Washington State passed Senate Bill 5722, which restricts the practice of conversion therapy. Oh, that's wonderful news. Okay, so you hadn't heard it. No. Now, I don't exactly understand the full story in terms of the legality, because I think now it goes to the House for final voting or something. I don't know. But at any rate, it seems like Washington is either finished with the process or well on its way to making conversion therapy illegal, following in the footsteps of other states, surprisingly, that have already done so. And I think uh, it's already... Why haven't we done it earlier? So, yeah. I think it's already illegal in King County. It's been illegal in King County for a while, I believe. Right. Yeah, I remember. I actually have notes on all this. I, I didn't pull it up. But, uh, yeah, I I did a whole episode on conversion therapy and looked up all the different uh, places where it's illegal. And I think that's right. It, it I remember also reading that in Florida, the state, it's fine. But there's all these municipalities where it's illegal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Miami and because there's a lot of gay center populations in Florida, but the rest of Florida is super anti-gay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In fact, when the shootings happened at the Pulse nightclub, Orlando, Florida has this huge gay center um, and it was able to kind of instantly like kick into gear and offer all kinds of services, partly because they were already so organized. Right. So to date, nine other states have outlawed conversion therapy, and so we will be the 10th 
And to my knowledge, all the major professional organizations have made official statements against conversion therapy, including uh, AAMFT, which is the Marriage and Family Therapy Association, our Washington chapter. Uh, oh, that's where I got this this notification from, was from Washington Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, because they talked about our lobbyist, Amber Lewis, who continues to monitor the situation uh, in Olympia, Washington, which is our capital, American Psychological Association, American Counseling Association. I'm assuming the Art Therapy Association is also officially against conversion therapy, but who knows with today's... <laughs> they, they have put out an official statement. It's kind of like talking out two sides of their mouth because of the support of Karen Pence. They had to double back quickly and be like, oh, yes, we're against conversion therapy. Um, it was humorous when they did that. So, Yeah, and for those not in the know, conversion therapy is a therapeutic practice that had has been around ever. Freud actually engaged in it. Back really? In the day. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Freud actually had a had an interesting uh, ambivalence, shall we say, about the whole thing. Because and and, you know, he's a product of his time. Right. It wasn't like there were the politics of today. But so on one hand, he there's a famous case where an American mother wrote him and said, you know, I, I need I have a gay son and I need you to use your psychoanalysis tricks to make him ungay. Mm-hmm. Freud, I think, corresponded for a little bit and then basically wrote back to her and said, there's nothing wrong with your son. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, unless there's something else wrong with him, I, I don't see any reason why he should be in treatment. He's not harming anybody, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so he didn't have the pathological view or the moralistic view of it. He wasn't, um, he wasn't fervent, fervent. Way the, that a lot of, the way that a lot of other, including Anna Freud, actually his daughter, was a fervent anti, uh, anti-gay conversion therapist. Person. Really? Yeah, and there's also like all the speculation that she might have been gay herself. I involved. have heard that. I think she was involved with a famous heiress. I have to. I know all this stuff. I have to track it down. Right, and and Freud may have actually engaged in a sort of unofficial conversion therapy on her because Anna Freud went through psychoanalysis with her father. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. That's just how they did. Things I back. know, right. Everyone was psychoanalyzing everybody just because it, it was anyway, because they hadn't worked out the ethics yet. But the other, but Freud also a couple times would say things like the condition of being gay is basically a sexual immaturity. That is, it's sort of like they've never really progressed past the homosexual phase, psychosexual phases of early childhood. And so he wasn't like he, he did see it as a problem, but he didn't see it as like. A huge problem, if that makes any sense. Um, anyway, the point is, is that conversion therapy, and then so then after Freud, and throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, there was a lot of therapists who were participating in conversion therapy, and a lot of clients who were actually asking for it, a lot of parents who were asking for it, and uh, and so what would happen was through research when we started looking at this, we discovered that. One, it wasn't working at all, right. and two, it was harming these people. It was driving them, you know, you take a hundred gay kids or young adults, 
and then a, and and you put 50 of them through conversion therapy and 50 of them not the 50 who go through conversion therapy are much more likely to kill themselves much more likely to be depressed much more likely to act out sexually much, much more likely to be anxious and have substance abuse problems just you know it, it was like not only is it not working but in fact actually freud even said that too he said to that woman in in america he's like um he's like or no no not to the woman but this is when one of his when it was one of his lectures he said to engage in in psychoanalysis to change one's sexual orientation the only way it's going to work is if the patient already has an attraction toward the opposite sex and is completely on board with trying to change their behavior <laughs> so freud's like it, you know if someone's gay and they and they want to be gay and, and they don't and they don't want to not be gay then there's no sense in engaging in any kind of treatment because that's a choice that they're you know they they want this and so there's no point so anyway um so i have a that, I have a question for you. Yeah, yeah. Do you have you ever treated anybody or know anybody who's gone through conversion therapy? That is a good question. Have you? I know someone who went through it in uh, Oklahoma and was severely damaged by it. Her parents. This was twenty years ago. Her parents forced her to go, and she came to Seattle and continued to be gay away from them. And she said it was just horrifying and terrifying and she did whatever she could to get away from it. So um, it's not just anecdotally or, well, it isn't. That's an anecdotal story. Um, but uh, yeah, if you've ever met anyone that's gone through it and they're willing to talk to you about it, um, it's a pretty terrifying experience. Well, I know someone who does it. Really? <laughs> yeah. He, I talked about this in the conversion therapy episode uh, in 2017. He is a childhood friend of mine. And, wow. Uh, I we were we weren't super close, but close enough. And I and I'm still friends with him. He's like he's a really he's famous on the internet. You can look him up, Jason Graves. He spells it with a Y, J, J, Sun Graves. He is perhaps the most famous charismatic conversion therapy proponent in the world. You know, he doesn't come across like an old fogey. You know, he's our age and he is very good on camera. And so the situation with him is that, and he's open about this, so I'm not, he's open about this on the internet. So uh, this is. You're not outing him? He talks about how when he was growing up he had a lot of gay impulses and and involved in sexual behavior with with other boys um and was very ashamed of it and actually was bullied for it at a different school uh across town from my school and then i think he transferred schools because he was getting bullied so much to my high school and that's when we became friends and and you were like hey i like this gay guy <laughs> <laughs> just kidding yeah well i mean I, I, but so so he was really struggling with that and then he he became basically kind of like a born-again christian mm -hmm. and they started to really build back his self-esteem and and really help him and but he'd gone down some dr major drug paths after high this is all after high school 
and then he found God and found born again Christianhood, and they helped him, and and they also said you have to resist the urge to be gay because that's part of the whole sinning lifestyle, and you know so the rest of it I think was all great. It's like help him not use drugs, give him a community, help him to uh, live a good life, and also you can't be gay. <laughs> you know, right. like it's like, why does that have to be a part of it? You know. But it is, and for many people, and so he, that's what he did. And he sort of associates gay impulse with like promiscuity the, and dr- the dark arts, right? <laughs> and because that's what his life was like at that at that point, you know, um, it was it was that. And and but the mistake is like you can still be gay and have relationships with men and not you know use drugs and and uh, go down a life of difficulty and unmanageableness. But anyway, so he talks about this pretty openly, and, and you know, now he is married with kids and seems to be, you know, living a, a lovely life, but he still struggles with pornography, mm. and he'll talk, he'll talk about it openly on the Internet. So, so he, he has multiple sex addictions. Yeah, I suppose if that's how you want to phrase it. And oh, helped... that's how I want to phrase it. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, as a, and then he became a therapist shortly after that at SPU, which is a, a you know Christian university in Seattle, and they were supportive, I think, of his point of view. But anyway, he ended up be, uh, sort of becoming a regular therapist, family therapist. And then I think started to dabble in helping people convert from being gay to straight and then became and then started to speak out about it. And then the Christian community, I think, latched on to him and started to uh, promote him and make DVDs of his work and, you know, testimonials and all this kind of stuff. And when I caught wind of this, I started to argue with him about it intensely and we would debate about it over and over and over again. And it, it just basically came down to he believes in the in his particular Christian sect, uh, you know, sect, the sect of Christianity that he's a part of. They believe that being gay is a sin and there's just no ambiguity about that. And so he, there's no way out of that for him. And so that's what it came down to for him was like. He, he understood all my points, he understood the research, he understood what I was saying, but, he, but in the end, he basically would dance around, and then I would then I would sort of say, so basically what you're saying is you believe God does not want people to be gay, right? Mm-hmm. And he'd be like, yes, yes, I believe that God considers it bad to be gay. And I was like, okay, well, there, I can't do anything about that. You know, if that's what you think, then that's what you think. And so anyway... But he's still a great guy, <laughs> uh, regardless of um, of this really terrible thing that he is doing to human beings. <laughs> so why do good people do bad things? It's so confusing. Dogma and culture. Yeah. And internalized homophobia. And yeah, I wonder. Uh, I'm just super curious. I mean, this happens. Occasionally, in evangel, this happened to some famous evangelist recently that his child came out as transgender, and they're deciding to support that child. 
because it was becoming clear that the child was going to kill themselves if they weren't given the opportunity to express their gender. Um, so it'll just be interesting over time. Let's go on to another email here. Patron Emily writes in and says, Hey, Kirk, I recently got a position teaching at the school I graduated from back in May. Although I do have clinical experience, I do not have any experience in academia. I remember you saying that you taught immediately after you graduated from your program, from your master's program, and I wonder what your experience was like and if you have any suggestions for new professors. So this is patron Emily from Philly, I think, whom came to the live event back last month, which you attended as well, Rebecca. But before we go on to that topic, what do you, what advice do you have for patron Emily as she new faculty begins teaching like very quickly after graduating from, from her program? What do you think? Uh, well, I waited a few years. Um, boy, if, so what I know from people that step in right away is that it can be difficult to know your role and things can get kind of messy as um, people may not know, know that you're suddenly a teacher. Um, so I think it just, it takes some time to uh, step into that new role. Um, and I would say anything you don't know, please ask questions instead of just kind of, um, jumping in and assuming you know the answer. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's pretty much what I did when I started out. And that was really stupid because I just didn't have an open line of communication or it wasn't, it wasn't really communicated to me that I could communicate very quickly. Or when I did try to communicate, I wouldn't get any answers and, or good answers or something. And so, yeah, uh, and I tell this to adjuncts all the time and, and actually to new faculty. Well, there's so many new faculty in Antioch right now. It's crazy because uh, the, the program is, is we're going through another boom in terms of people wanting to come to Antioch. And so we're hiring left and right, which is just crazy. And we just don't. Anyway, the point is, is like there's a lot of people. And I'm always telling them, like, always ask if you don't if you're not sure of the answer, because there's disasters will happen if you just answer based on like your best guess. Right. Like, like, yes, send them to the bursar, send them to the registrar. Uh, Just quickly email me the question and I will, I will answer it or tell you where to go. Um, And the other, yeah, the other thing you talked about in terms of like students not really understanding your role, I ran into that. Absolutely. Because you know, one week I was, <laughs> and then literally three weeks later, I was a professor, <laughs> and, you know, because there's that in-between quarter break. And I had some students in my class who were classmates three weeks earlier. And so it was weird for me. And it wasn't like I instantly became an instructor, you know, it was, I was a learning instructor. I was a, a kind of like an intern instructor. And I treated it that way with, with my students. I didn't look at them like, you know, you will obey me. It was like, look, I, I just graduated. I'm, I'm giving it my best shot and I'm here to serve. I'm here to help you. And I'm, and I'm doing my best and like, let me know how I'm doing. And da, 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 instead of trying to act like something I wasn't, but it was a, a, another funny thing I remember happening was I was assistant teaching the next quarter with Paul David in his couple therapy class. 
and the the Paul at the beginning of the quarter had introduced me as just someone who was like helping him out, like a TA or something. And the students treated me appropriately, which which meant they didn't respect me at all. <laughs> <laughs> they completely ignored me and didn't didn't care about me at all, which was fine because that's just how people normally treat me. And then they turn in their papers like week six or seven. And after they've turned in their papers, Paul announces to the class, so as my TA, Kirk, he's going to be grading all of your papers. And and then I'll look over them after he grades them and give the final grade sort of thing. And then after class, suddenly everyone was treating me completely oh, differently. Oh, because you had power. They were smiling at me hi kirk how you doing you know I, I liked what you did with that one thing it was night and day <laughs> and that's when i realized oh i better remember this because this is sort of like falsely earned respect <laughs> you know it's not like i earned their respect it's it's just because they're scared of me <laughs> that they're suddenly treating me in this different light. It's sort of like being a celebrity, right? You, If you're Hugh Jackman or something and you're walking down the street, people are nicer to you if they know who you are. And I just I just said, oh, I better remember this so, so, that, so that I don't think that I actually am deserving of this respect. It's just it's just because of my title. It's not really who I am. Do you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I think, and I remember that the first quarter I taught, some people were pissed. They lost their favorite professor. And who was this, you know, much younger person replacing that person. And, you know, it can take a long time to kind of find who you are as a professor. And I was one of those professors that people got mad at all the way through my teaching. Um, but you know, you'll kind of find your, Why was that? because I'm a woman and I'm not motherly and I'm mouthy and they would get upset with you. Yeah. Oh, oh I, people tried to fire me a couple times. There was like mass many, this happened two or three times that there was like kind of student revolts about me. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of normal in academia. This stuff just kind of happens. I remember telling somebody like, Oh my God, I'm so nervous. And they're like, Oh, this just happens. Um, but you know, I mean, people are paying a lot of money and they're worried. This happens more with female faculty than with male faculty. They kind of worry that, you know, you will work against them or you're not the right one to help out or someone else will be better. Um, so if any of those things happen to this person, then maybe they won't, maybe she's not that type of personality. Um, you know, just know it's kind of par for the course. Like, um, teaching can be really hard. And uh, you can definitely yeah. be, This have, there's all kinds of statistics about women faculty versus male faculty and what happens. Um, but you can definitely become the bad object. Uh, so just kind of, when it, if it happens, it's really hard. But, you know, try not to take it personally and just kind of see it as part of the process. Um. Yeah, I mean, finally, men are getting some breaks here, you know, it's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've heard that from many of my call, most of, in fact, at this point, 
come come July, all of my colleagues will be women at, oh. at the helm. There, there's there's you know with Paul leaving and Jerry leaving, and uh, and Colin leaving. Like there's no and with all the new hires, just kind of for circumstantial reasons, it's been it's women. So I, I hear that a lot from other women instructors who will say that they have to work much harder to gain their respect. And it should be pointed out that art therapists are almost entirely female students, you know, people identify as right. female. Right, but I was always shocked. Like, I would say something a hundred times, and then, you know, some student would come to me all starry-eyed, repeating back the exact same thing stated by the one male faculty. And I was just like, you have to be kidding me. But okay. <laughs> Yeah, and sexism is real, and of course, it, it it's it's not like it wouldn't exist in the field of psychotherapy instruction and training. So, yeah, and that sucks. Um, yeah, other other kinds of things that I would say to Patron Emily is that being an instructor is stressful. Oh yes, it, it is. I've never met an instructor who didn't have this kind of feeling about it which is that it although if you just sort of described it you'd be like well you know it's just a job you work you, you put in your hours you, you give it your best shot and you go home but i i've never had an instructor who really felt that way about it it it's so elevated for instructors in terms of the importance we put on it in terms of doing a good job you know as a therapist there are times is particularly in my earlier early career where I would have a, a whole day of clients and I felt like I just failed every single client. You know, I was just like, man, I wasn't on my game. I was a little stressed out. My countertransference got to me and it, I just didn't, I was not helpful as a therapist today. And I would, I would just, I would have that little thought in my head and I just move on with my life. No big deal. <laughs> you know, I'd just be like, well, get, you'll get him next time, Kirk, you know, <laughs> but when it came to teaching, even if there was a hint, a slight hint that I might have slightly failed as an instructor, like I would ruminate mm-hmm. on that. And, and I've never met, particularly a, a novice instructor. And by novice, I mean like the first 10 years you teach. Oh, yeah. The <laughs> first four times you teach a class, you're a novice. Yeah. Like it takes a long yeah. time to be able to have, at Antioch, it's 10 weeks of content down pat. Like it's a long Long road. Right. And so I, what, and, and I find that other instructors need a lot of support. That, that's where that communication comes in, where you talk with mentors or just fellow novice instructors about how you're feeling and how to interpret things. You know, you'll, you'll get evaluations back from your students. And one of the students will say that, they think you're stupid or you're the worst instructor they've ever had. And, and how do you interpret that? You know, how do you feel, how, how do you work through that? And how do you, uh, cause for me, the, the thing that always helped me was Paul David, my mentor back then would tell me, Kirk, you're awesome. Don't worry about it. <laughs> like I know these things I've been around the block and you know, yeah, maybe you didn't nail that one thing, or maybe that one student just didn't like you. You know, you'll work on it. You'll get better over time. It's okay. And to have someone like that contain my feelings really helped. And if I didn't have that, 
I would have dropped out. And to be honest, and I've talked about this in the podcast before, is I quit being an instructor for good Mm -hmm. twice. Two different times I was like, I'm done with this shit. And a big part of it was the stress, was just the enormity of, like, you know, I would have all these clients and I'd be, I, I was supervising and I, you know, I had all these different tasks of my week. I, you know, as a musician, as a blah, blah, blah. And, but the thing that just completely kept me awake at night was my teaching responsibilities, even though that was as an adjunct was very minimal, you know, it was very stressful. And I think of it, you know, the reason I left was because it was like being on call for 10 weeks in a row. Um, And it's just a lot. People want your time and people have big questions and you're trying to present the material in a current manner and things will change suddenly. Like one of the biggest reasons I stopped changing was that the DSM four was updating to the DSM five. And I thought, Oh dear God, I'm going to have to learn that well enough to teach it. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I'm tired. <laughs> right. Which, which sort of brings another point that I would say to patron Emily from Philly, which is that it's, you you kind of have to be a nerd for this sort of thing, meaning that when when things like that come up for you, you have to you have to endure that. You know, you have to be not only like tolerate it, but even like enjoy it. You have to be like, ooh, I can't wait to get my hands on the DSM five and like learn all that stuff. You know, I'm I'm really looking forward to that because to be, I think a you know a an effective, relevant instructor, you have to stay up to date yeah. and you have to keep moving. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's when I eventually had to go. <laughs> it's like, I can't, I can't keep up. Um, well, what was the main reason why you left? Was it, well, was it, it was, the it was a bunch of things. Actually, I got in a car accident and, um, I had a post concussion syndrome and my short term memory got all messed up. And I was like, <laughs> like, this is a lot harder with that part of my brain not doing so well. Um, so that was part of it. Um, one of it, I was only half time. Yeah. Um, so that was some of it. Uh, and some of it was, um, politics. I mean, uh, we don't have to get into specifics, but, and also teaching during the downturn, it got really depressing. I mean, I don't know if you remember that, like teaching around 2007, eight, Seven, eight, yeah, where people would come to you in tears and say, like, promise me this is worth it. I'm going into, you know, $100,000 worth of debt. And I couldn't say that. (laughs) It's like people go into this for all different reasons. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, So I got kind of overwhelmed with the pressure of it. And then... Uh, it was some of it was keeping relevant. The age of the students kept going down. I remember I had some great lectures, like teaching the lifespan stuff by comparing Harry Potter to um, Darth Vader and how they did at different stages. And, you know, isn't it interesting what happened here and what happened there? And I went to give the lecture and none of the students knew who Harry Potter or Darth Vader was. And that's, yeah, what? and I was like, oh. Darth Vader, I could see them not being fam- that familiar, but you would think the younger crowd would know Harry Potter. Yeah, none of them, none of them had read. I guess so. 
That's weird. Um, so I was like, oh, I'd have to make up a new lecture for this, which is what professors <laughs> have to do all the time. But I just wasn't that motivated. And some of it, you know, is the type of kid I had and the requirement of my your, son your son. and, you know, my wife is a trial attorney and there are times where she has no wiggle room and someone needed to have wiggle room. And so this is classic and a lot of married couples that ended up going to the lower wage earning spouse, which is actually what I'm called at her firm. Like, because a lot of them are married to lawyers, but I'm called the low wage earning spouse. <laughs> so, um, what do you mean? No, like not a as a joke. Or, like, uh, as they, you know, talk, they, you know, because they're lawyers and they talk about money and percentages all the time. But compared to what uh, they can make as compared to what I can make, it's like, you know, I don't fit in their context. <laughs> it's like uh, how the world works. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of reasons. And I did it for eight years. You know, that's a good chunk of time um but it yeah, wasn't yeah. uh my life's calling i kind of figured that out and it's interesting actually to loop back um teaching continuing education classes are like oh this is all the fun stuff i love coming up with six hours of lecture i hate going to meetings grading papers um you know all that stuff all the administrative yeah. stuff yeah, yeah there's a lot of that and that's I find that people never assume or never know about my job. You know, they'll be like, especially when I was like program director, they, you know, like a, a sort of friend that doesn't keep up to date with my life, you know, daily, which is most of my friends, they'd, they'd be like, you know, you know how you have that small talky thing, you know, like how's work, you know? And they'll, they'll be like, they'll be like, Oh, you know, how's work? You know, did you teach today? And I'd be like, I, I went wish to a I horrible today. meeting instead. Yeah, all I did today <laughs> was go to meetings and like write legal papers for some lawsuit and deal with policy and politics. And you know, it, it they when they think professor, they think teaching because that's that's what they see, right? But what they don't realize is like the average professor out of forty hours of of you know, working a week, they probably teach for only like three mm -hmm. of those hours. The rest of it's just all this administrative stuff, you know, uh, meetings and program development, marketing, uh, admissions of students. And because at Antioch, we're so small, we do all, all that, you know, as professors, we we interview the students, we advise the students, you know, at the University of Washington, my professors didn't advise me about what right. classes to take. I had a, a, a paid advisor who did that. And so, anyway. Um, so, Rebecca, you have to go, right? I have to go. Client is coming. I have a client. I have to do the work. Yeah. And I have to actually go teach, ironically, uh, or appropriately. So, maybe we should continue this conversation another time because I feel like we've only just scratched the surface in terms of like. There's so much to say. What you should do. Uh, you know what we should tell patron Emily so let's let's schedule that and do it again what do you say I'm so ready thanks for joining us out there please take care of yourself because why should people take care of themselves Rebecca it's helpful to everyone uh -huh.